from Acts chapter 2. This was at Shavuot, 50 days after uh, Pesach, after the Lord had been sacrificed and risen again. The same group was back there in Jerusalem. The tomb was empty. The Pharisees couldn't explain it away. The people knew what the truth was. And Peter preached this message, a great salvation message, tying together what they knew to be true with apologetics, with what the Old Testament Scripture had said was going to happen. And beginning in verse 22, by the way, we're going to have a little bit of an interesting twist, but you'll see why we chose this text as we get into the message about 10 minutes. You men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. You all know who he was. You saw what he did, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered, get this phrase, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that she should be held by those chains of death. Now, verse 23 talks about this determinate counsel in foreknowledge of God. So here's the thing. Even though the Jews were wrong, even though the Jews blew it by rejecting Jesus and having Him crucified, this didn't take God by surprise. As a matter of fact, all of this was a part of His master plan of redemption. So with that being said, let me introduce the title of today's message, The Marvel of Mothers. By the way, that's my family. Isn't this guy just a cute little kid? Isn't he adorable? Now you can see Dave was a good guy. Dave looked like a good kid. You'd let your daughter go out. This pure evil right here. You can see how mischievous he was right there, right from the get-go. But anyway, the message today is the marvel of mothers. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this Mother's Day, and thank you for the mother that I was born by and, and being able to see at the age of 97, being able to go and visit yesterday. Lord, thank you for blessing Dave and Steve and I with uh, a loving, wonderful mom that loved us enough to, to kiss our cheek and to heal, uh, help try to, to mend our wounds, but also loved us enough to pick up a belt and discipline us if that was necessary. And Lord, thank you for the mother of my children. And I thank you for all the mothers that are represented here this morning. Lord, I pray that among other things, they be honored and they recognize just how important their unique calling is in your overall scheme and design. So, Lord, may you be glorified in our preaching and teaching. Open our hearts to receive the Word of God and help me, Lord God, to be able to articulate clearly your truths. We ask this all humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In Genesis, we're given an account of the creation, God's supernatural creation, in fact. Of course, we know that in six days, and by the way, those were six 24-hour days. Anytime in the Hebrew, uh, the word yom, is mod- which is day, is modified by evening and morning, it means a 24-hour day. Anytime it's modified by a number, it means a 24-hour day. And in the creation account, both are in fact true. The evening and the morning were the first day. So we've got over six 24-hour days. God begins by speaking into existence uh, all time, space, and matter. And then God, one by one, forms it all. And the design was perfect. Of course, on day six, He created mammals. And at the end of day six, The pinnacle of His creation is when He formed the man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into His nostrils, and He became a living soul. 
And as we talked about in last week's message, the original man was created in innocence and was given authority over planet earth. And as we talked about last week, God had clearly demonstrated his love towards Adam. God gave him a perfect Eden, gave him a perfect wife, was a perfect God walking with him daily. Everything was wonderful. God had clearly demonstrated love to Adam, but how could Adam demonstrate his love in return for God? Well, Jesus tells this, this, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And God at that point in time in the garden gave one test. There was one commandment, one restriction only. That Adam, this whole garden is for you. It's for you to keep and take care of. You can eat of any tree in the garden. But Adam, there's one tree that I've set aside that's mine. doesn't belong to you. You don't have access to it. You cannot eat of that tree. Adam, you already know that which is good. But if you disobey me by eating of that tree, you will then know what evil is also. This is the tree. This is the test. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, you know how things turned out. We all are evidence of how things turned out. Romans 5.12 says that, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death was a result of sin, so that death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Now, you know how heavily we emphasize apologetics in this church, the factuality of our faith, the overwhelming evidence that there is a God, and everything you see is by design. It didn't just happen by evolution and by accident. We talk about the evidence of the empty tomb. We know without doubt historians, true historians do not question the fact that Jesus of Nazareth lived. They know and have documented history that Jesus was baptized by a man named John the Baptist in the Jordan River. They know that he was crucified by a man named Pontius Pilate, the governor of, of, of this province of Judea, uh, overruling, uh, overseeing on behalf of, of, the, of Rome. And they also know factually that the body is missing, has been missing, was never found by the Roman authorities. Those things are apologetics. That's the facts of our faith. And ladies and gentlemen, the thing that's so important about that is that Jesus said, Jesus is the only person that ever came into the planet claiming not to be able to tell you about God or tell you about heaven or how to get to heaven, only man that ever claimed to be God and then promised that he would prove it by a irrefutable supernatural miracle. Jesus said, I'm going to give you one miracle. Three days after I go into the tomb, I'm coming out. And when you see that happen, you will know that I am, in fact, the Lord. That is apologetics. That is the facts of our faith. That is the what. Apologetics proves the what. This series of scriptures we're going to cover real quickly covers the why. Through Adam, as descendants of Adam, we all are sinners, as we are all descendants of this original sinner, Adam. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.10 that there is none righteous, as a matter of fact. None. Not even one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. And notice, says, fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter how good you look to, next to the, sitting next to the person in your, in your pew. It doesn't matter whether you are a better person than your neighbor across the street from you. The standard by which we are all measured is the perfect Lord Jesus. And we all fall short. Now imagine if you would, if we were in a, a, a jumping contest and we had a contest and we called it, we we're going to jump the Pacific. And we went out to Santa Monica Pier and we all were going to attempt to jump across the Pacific Ocean. Now I would go first, being that I'm oldest and most hobbled. 
And am I, imagine me hobbling down the end of the Santa Monica Pier and getting to the very end and just kind of tripping and toppling over into the water. And then we have some young athletic type like Fisher. And Fisher works up a good head of speed and works up to about 25 miles an hour, gets that last plank, leaps and flies in the air about 30 feet, yet he still falls into the water. We all fall short. Because it's not comparing you to Doc or you to Steve or you to Cindy. It's comparing you to Jesus. And we have all fall sinned, or we have all sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us that there is a consequence for that. The wages of sin is death. What are wages? Wages are something that we earn. What we have earned is death. Now, we think of death as physical death. The word death literally means separation. And that is true. Physical death is when the soul is separated from the body. But literally, death means separation. When you sin, as Adam did, you remember God told Adam, don't eat of the tree, Adam, because the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, we know physically Adam lived at least another 930 years. He didn't die physically that day. But Adam did die spiritually. His sin separated him from a holy God. And if you die separated from a holy God, then you spend eternity separated from a holy God in a place that's called hell, according to Matthew 25, 41, a place that was created for the devil and his angels. Fortunately, it doesn't end there. Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrated just how much he loves us. And that why, even though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Nothing he did. We're the ones that did wrong. But Jesus loved us, and Jesus gave his life in our place. Romans 10, 9, and 10 tells us how we appropriate that. See the man kneeling, pledging allegiance, yielding to Jesus, worshiping Jesus, that if thou shalt confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. Lord, I surrender unto you. Lord, let me get on my knees. You are my Lord. I yield myself to you. You are my King and my God. That if thou shalt confess in your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you truly believe that God hath raised him from the dead, that means that he paid your sin debt, and it was sufficient. Remember, the wages of sin is death. The chains of death could not hold Jesus. The debt was paid in full. He rose from the dead. Raised from the dead. Thou shalt be born again. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. With these truths as to why, and the evidence as to what through apologetics, we each have to make a decision. What are you going to do with this man named Jesus? And there's only two options. Ignoring him is an option. Ignoring it and putting it off is saying no. But the Apostle Paul, when preaching to a king named Herod Agrippa at Caesarea Maritime, said, gave this great gospel presentation, presenting the evidence of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Agrippa, even though under conviction, said, nope, not going to do it. Paul, you almost persuaded me, but no. Well, that's one answer. Then you've got Thomas. We all know of doubting Thomas who when told by the other disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead, said, I don't believe it. I saw the man's dead, lifeless body. I saw him wrapped up. I saw, he looked like hamburger. There is no way that he's alive. I saw him placed in the tomb. I don't believe it. Eight days later, Jesus stood right before him, held out his hand, said, here, Thomas, go ahead, check it out. 
Here, give me a piece of fish. Let me eat that so you'll see that I am physically standing here. Here, here's the imprint on my side. Go ahead, Thomas. What did Thomas do? Thomas fell on his knees and cried out, my Lord and my God. Those are the only two options, no or yes. Well, being God, we must understand that Jesus created us. John 1, 2 said that all things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the source of all life. And as man, He died for us. He died for His creation. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Now, a sacrifice of a bullock or a lamb obviously, logically, does not equate to the life value of a man. And even if you did have one perfect normal man who could lay down his life for another, then a normal man's life, the value of that would only equate to the life of one other man. But as the Creator became man, being that He is the source of all life, He has the reserves, so to speak, to atone for all His creation. And as the Creator became fully man, He gave His life, and that sacrifice was sufficient to cover the sins of all mankind. And understand logically, the righteous demands of a holy God could only be met or satisfied by the righteousness of God. And understand also, we aren't born children of God. We are born descendants of Adam. We are born again as children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, our text told us that God in His foreknowledge knew that man would need a Savior before He was ever created. And God in His foreknowledge determined to pay the debt for His creation. And God knew the price that would be paid as He is the author of salvation, and He finished the redemption for mankind as well. So how would God reveal Himself to the world? How would salvation come to the world? I love this incident when Elijah was discouraged and God had driven him down to Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, likely the very location where Moses had been the thousand years earlier. And Elijah was looking for God to show up. He had just been at Mount Carmel uh, a couple of weeks earlier and had called down fire from heaven. And of course, he thought there was going to be a great revival, and instead there was great rejection. In fact, Queen Jezebel was calling for his head, wanted to have him killed. And Elijah was asking for God to show up and act. And Elijah was mad, and Elijah wanted some revenge. And God gave some options, said that the Lord passed by, and a strong wind tore the mountains. But the Lord was not in the wind. Then there was a strong earthquake that shook Mount Sinai. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. And Elijah no doubt said, yeah, let's give him fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after that, imagine all this ruckus. This terrible wind, imagine the sound of a tornado, imagine the rumbling of an earthquake, imagine the fear of a fierce fire out of control, then all of a sudden, calmness, still. And in the stillness, a small voice. 
So how would God reveal Himself? Would it be through a fire from heaven? Would it be through lightning? Would it be through an earthquake? No, ladies and gentlemen, God revealed Himself as a baby held in His mother's arms in the stillness of a stable in Bethlehem. Listen, can you hear that newborn baby's cry? Luke 2, the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, before man was ever created, God knew that man would need a Savior. And God had already determined the redemption of man. Salvation would come as the Word was made flesh, born of the seed of the woman. Before man was ever created, God designed the delivery system for the salvation of mankind. God designed a loving mother to bring salvation into His creation. We sometimes think that we don't see miracles anymore. I beg to differ, and let me show you one. This was my oldest son. And his wife, Brooke, along with Cindy and I and my youngest son and other daughter-in-law, Jacob and Kinsey. This was in December of 2019, the day before their wedding. This next slide was about 11 months ago as Cece was, and I were being let in on a little secret. We were the first to find out, and we knew about a month before everybody else did, but we wanted, they wanted us to pray with them. Of course, at that point in time, there's obviously still some risk about uh, the uh, baby surviving at the early stages. This is my oldest son and his wife about three months ago. She's starting to waddle. No, she's drastically waddling at this time. And this picture really doesn't show her in all her glory. This is my oldest son and his wife and baby two months ago. And this is a very proud Cece and Saba with their grandbaby. I would like to say that every birth is a miracle. Aren't you glad that 2,000 years ago that engaged young woman from Nazareth who found herself pregnant, although she was a virgin, didn't decide to abort. Aren't you glad that 2,000 years ago that young lady growing up in Nazareth didn't value her career above being a mother? The most precious cargo, the most precious treasure, God became flesh and He was carried for nine months in the womb of Mary and then born in a manger. Imagine, if you would, God in the flesh rocked to sleep at night because that's what a mother does. God in the flesh fed each day at His mother's breast because that's what a mother does. God in the flesh needing to have His diaper changed by His loving mother because that's what a mother does. God in the flesh, being a little boy, playing in Egypt, and then eventually in Nazareth, 
coming to his mother with scraped knees and bruised elbows, having his tears wiped away and comforted by his loving mother because that's what a mother does. God in the flesh being tucked in at night and told Bible stories because that's what a mother does. Imagine God in the flesh being taught to read and write by his loving mother because that's what a mother does. Did God have mothers in mind in his foreknowledge when he was deciding whom he could trust to bring his only begotten son, the most precious treasure ever carried into the world? I think so. And did you notice that throughout the life of Jesus, Mary was always around? Never was she the center of attention, but always observing. Early in his ministry, Jesus attended the marriage at Cana, and it was recorded in John chapter 2, and his mother was there encouraging her son as he began his public ministry. At Capernaum, on several occasions throughout his ministry, you see the proud eyes of a mother observing and supporting her son, no doubt facing challenges as her brothers, or Jesus' brothers, were jealous of their older brother. Now, I've heard of jealousy within siblings. And I've heard Dave and Steve say that mom and dad thought I was perfect. But can you imagine actually having Jesus as a brother? Actually having a brother who was, in fact, perfect. At the crucifixion, I can imagine the pain she must have felt as ten of the disciples were nowhere to be found. But Mary was there with John and the Lord in one of his last acts as a loving son charged John now with the care of his mother. And then we see 50 days later in the upper room after the ascension, Mary was with the 120 members of that little congregation engaged in prayer and waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, always in the shadows as she pondered the things that Gabriel had told her that night, observing and supporting and loving her son. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the most important job in the Bible other than Christ dying for our sins? Well, I'm not sure what number two is, but I'd say that carrying and birthing the Savior of the world had to rank near the top. So, ladies, we are living in a day where men are encouraged to be women and women are encouraged to be men. I would respond by saying to all, treasure your calling. If God created you as a man. He did not make a mistake. You be the best man for God that you can be. If God created you as a woman, He did not make a mistake. You treasure your calling and you be the best woman for God that you can be. Be what God made you to be. And ladies, there is no job more important Not being an accountant, not being a lawyer, not being a doctor. There is no job more important than giving birth and raising your own child. And the whole messaging system out there right now saying that it is, is a lie. If you became president of the United States... It would pale when compared with the responsibility of carrying the miracle of the creation of life and sustaining humanity and training up the next generation. 
Charles Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers, pastored the great Spurgeon Tabernacle in London. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, dare say over the last century, millions have been influenced or come to faith as a result of his mission and ministry. He said this, fathers and mothers are the most natural agents for God to use in the salvation of their children. I am sure that in my early youth, no teaching ever made such an impression upon my mind as the instruction of my mother. Do you think Spurgeon's mom made a difference in the direction of the world? Do you think Spurgeon's mom made a difference in the population of heaven? Susanna Wesley gave birth to 19 children. Only 10 survived childbirth. She raised them. Two were named Charles and John. They were the fathers of the Methodist religion. At one time, Methodism was very doctrinally sound. Unfortunately, uh, most of the time, that can't be said today. As a matter of fact, that can't be said for most Baptist churches today either, now that I think about it. But this man that had a tremendous uh, effect on the uh, revivals in both America and in England said this, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians of England. Now, if you consider all the lives that were touched and changed by the ministry of, of, uh, of, uh, of John and Charles Wesley, uh, how much of an impact do you think their mother had in the population of heaven? President George Washington said this, My mother was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. All I am, I owe to my mother. I attribute all my success in life to the moral, intellectual, physical education I received from her. Ladies and gentlemen, old saying, but it's a true saying, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. That's why in every totalitarian society, the government wants to educate your children. That's why Hitler started his Hitler Youth. And it took less than 10 years for Germany to be somewhat rational in 1930, to be over-the-edge nuts by 1940. All they had to do was take one generation of the children and brainwash them, and the country was changed. And some 40 million lives were lost in Europe as a result of it. Marx's theory was this, no families... We want to destroy the family. We want all to be workers. In fact, if a mother hooks up, by the way, you've got to have a license from the state, just like cattle. And as you are impregnated, once you birth your child, you care for the child until three months. Then you turn the child over to the state. The state will raise your child. You can go back to work. Well, we say that's terrible, but it's all in your sales pitch. When you've got a legislature saying, hey, we're going to provide early, early, early childhood education. And we're doing it for you ladies so you can get right back to work. Well, we have the same results. We have children, then we turn them over to the state to raise them. What did God instruct us to do? The Shema, the commandment that was given to the nation of Israel to perpetuate by the way, this was a foolproof plan if they had followed it. Foolproof plan if we have followed it. Shema Israel, Adonai Eliheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, 
the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And what's the very first thing after you've established it with you? Thou shalt teach these words diligently to thy children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and, and as you're walking down the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, everything you do around your family, everything you do in business should be governed by a biblical worldview. You should love the Lord and you, mom and dad, have been instructed to teach your children to love the Lord as well. By the way, who was given that charge? Was it parents or was it the public school system? I'm asking. Thank you. Were they to raise them? Did God say, okay, here's my command. Now, by the way, this only applies to Christians. So if you're not a Christian, this should just bounce right off of you like water off a duck's back. But if you're a Christian, this should mean something. Raise your children in all the ways of Darwin and what we profess to be modern science. Raise your children in all the ways of Marxism. No. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. And teach your children to do the same thing. Now, ladies, Pastor Dan and I share in the responsibility that God has entrusted us to shepherd this flock. Now, I want you to know, when I go home at night with my wife, or when I call Dan or we talk on the phone, we don't sit here and gossip about our congregation. We really don't. We, talk, we gossip about the deacons, yes. And there's plenty there. But we don't gossip about the congregation. We don't judge anyone personally. Our job is not the job of the Holy Spirit. We point people to the truth. We point people to Jesus for salvation. And we point people towards godly wisdom. But we can't make you obey. We don't follow you around and try to check up on you. We want what's best for you. We want what's best for your family. We offer you the best counsel we can. And we do pray for you. But that is it. It's up to you as to what you do with our biblical counsel. Now, with that being said, let me give you some. As I said a moment ago, God entrusted parents with children. In fact, when we do our baby dedication, second service, I will quote from Psalm 127. He called his children his heritage. Literally, he entrusts with us a portion of his estate. And we are to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now understand, if we don't do that with our children, then we are disobeying the commands of God. Is there any question about that? Am I twisting the language at all? Am I twisting the scripture at all? No. Now, in early America, Massachusetts, going all the way back to 1647, literally 27 years after the Pilgrims landed, they established the first public school act, but it was basically Protestant school act. Puritan communities of a certain number of households would come together and build a church, or build a, actually a church slash school, and they would hire a school teacher. And that teacher was accountable to the parents for what they taught the kids. By the way, the Bible was the primary textbook. So the, the, the parents were in control in monitoring the education. Now, was it as good as homeschooling? Probably not. But it was the next best thing. It was parents overseeing what they considered a professional educator 
educating their children in biblical truth. This was called the Old Deluder Act, actually. That all children must know how to read the, and be able to write so they can read the Bible for themselves and read the law for themselves and be good Christians and be good citizens and not be deluded as the old world had been during the Dark Ages. Now that is why the school bus in Edmond says Edmond Public Schools. Because we are supposed to be following the same model. It is supposed to be parents overseeing the education in their community. That's the way it once was. And the parents would elect a representative body representing the parents. We call that the school board. And then the school board would select the curriculum and hire uh, the superintendent and teachers to teach the children because the children don't belong to the state. The children don't belong to the city. The children belong to the parents. That's why it doesn't say the United States public schools. It is the city of Edmond public schools uh, supposed to be administered through the school board. And at one time, it was a phenomenal system. Look at this little guy. Which one's me? What mother would send a boy to baseball practice wearing white pants? But notice, you guys remember, this is the way baseball used to be. The only thing that matched was our T-shirts. We didn't even have letters on our hats. Look at that beautiful field. It's pristine, isn't it? A couple of cinder blocks and a two-by-six across the top of it. And that was baseball. By the way, this is Pete Reeser, the real estate tycoon here in Edmond. He's now in his upper 80s. Pete was my first Little League baseball coach. Let me tell you what. You know what school was like back then? It's how it had been for 200 years. You know what we called Christmas break? Christmas break. You know what we sang at Christmas break before our assembly to let out for Christmas break? Christmas carols. You know what we called Easter break? Easter break. You know what we celebrated? Easter. Uh, In second grade, just before Christmas break, I'll never forget... One of my classmates' father was a Methodist preacher. He came to our class, read the Christmas story from Luke 2, and gave everyone a Gideon's New Testament. That's what we did in Edmond Public Schools at the time. By the way, you didn't think of talking back to your teacher. You didn't think of cursing. All the way through high school, you lived in fear of the principal and vice principal because you could be called down to their office, bent over, and given licks. How many of you got licks? Had nothing to do with the tongue either, I can assure you. It was a big old wood paddle with holes drilled through it. You know why we have all this cushion back here with no bones there? So we can get licks. Yeah. When we need to have our attention gotten, that's a great place to get it. You know what? We never had a school. In our parking lot in high school, half of the pickup trucks had uh, deer rifles hanging on the rifle rack in the back glass. Because a lot of those young men would either be hunting on their way to school or go hunting after school. It was not unusual to see a student bring his rifle in, show it to his teacher. You know what the teacher said? Hey, let me look at that. Wow, I like that. Great scope. No such thing. No fear. Because we were taught to fear the Lord. We had a biblical worldview. We had teachers that loved us. And we got great education. I was hoping Valerie would be here this morning. Val was my ninth grade teacher. I was so unreal. She taught me geometry. 
I was so unremarkable, she didn't even realize she had me in class. Yeah. I'm thinking about bringing back the doctrine of purgatory just for Val to get even, just so I can scare her a little bit and get even for the C she gave me. Uh, anyway. But understand, we no longer educate our children. As a matter of fact, have you noticed in all the gloat? Now, now listen, moms, listen. The, the latest push with critical race theory. They're saying grades is racist. Grades are racist. So we're not grading anymore. We're not, we're not counting off with red ink anymore. And the score doesn't matter. All that's your effort. All that matters is Facts don't matter anymore. It doesn't matter anyway. If, you want to, if you're a little boy and you want to wear a dress and identify as a girl, that's okay. Let me tell you what. Facts matter in everything. You want to drive across a, a suspension bridge uh, that's done by an uh, engineer that doesn't believe facts matter? Do you want to have your knee replaced by a guy that was just passed because they didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings? Or do you want that surgeon to be the top of his class? Hey, facts matter, but not anymore. They're talking about not even having ACT test scores and things like that to evaluate going to college anymore. But public ed is not what it once was. Let me give you just a few examples. First of all, this you've probably seen recently. Yes, you are, ma'am. Good morning. Which is, and the speed limit is 40, and I was going 38, so why are you harassing me? You are me? correct. I pulled you over because... because you're a murderer. Because uh, yes, I started to record because you can't you're a murderer. Be a, you can't be on your cell phone while you're driving. I was on my phone. I was recording you because you scared you can't, me. You can't use your cell I phone can while you're recording. you. May I have your driver's license? I, it's, it's at my apartment. What's your apartment? It's at my home. I'm just taking my son to his... Do you, have, a, do you have your driver's license? I... It, I mistakenly left it at home. Do you have a picture of your driver's license? Yes, I do. May I have it? And can you call your supervisor, please? Because I, I already did. He's on his way. Good, because you're a murderer. Okay. And so you're giving me a cell phone ticket? Is that why you're harassing me? Not harassment. Yeah. I, I am enforcing the law. I have a right to and record the police when they're harassing me. By all means, but you can't do it while you're driving. I was. I can. I wasn't. Doesn't texting or none of that. Do you have? And you had that you picture? scared me and made me think you were going to murder me. Okay. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Well, you're. That's not just a feeling. You're a murderer. Okay. Can you zoom in on that for me, sure. dear? Sure. Thank you. And I'm perfectly legal, and I'm a teacher. So oh. there. Congratulations. Murderer. You're a murderer. What's your last name? I can't see that there. Well, if here you, you stop, go, murderer. Stop shaking. Zoom in on that for no, me, No, because right? you're scaring me. Oh, you're threatening to kill me and my son. Can you give me okay. the, the well, you, you, I'll tell you what, you keep smiling, yeah, you're on camera. You keep, you're, you're trying to threaten to kill me. I'm I not didn't smiling, say that. you're the one who's crazy. Hold that still, I can't see that. Uh, is this your car? Yes, it is. Um, you're trying to say I stole my own car because you're jealous? Yeah, is that what I don't that's think about? so. You wait for me right here, okay? You're jealous. All you need to do is your signature. He's only citing you for using your cell phone while you're driving. That's it. Hey, good man. Sign inside the red box. Right a, there. For him being a Mexican racist. What is that name? Gas. It's on the citation, man. Here you go, Mexican racist. You're always going to be a Mexican. You'll never be white. You know that, right? You'll never be white, which is what you really want to be. You there you go, be dear. White. Have you, a good day. You want to be white. 
Do you really want to entrust your child to that for your education? I say, Pastor, that's not in Oklahoma. And Father, there are Christian teachers. Let me introduce you to one. This is a gentleman that I met uh, two years ago when we were doing our Liberty Tours. This was in Tampa, Florida, an event we did. The man on the right there is a coach at a middle school in the, uh, one of the school districts, a large school district there in the Tampa era. He was fired because he refused to watch a teenage girl take a shower in the boys' locker room. Teenage girl identifying as a boy. School district said, you better go in there and watch them. He says, I'm a Christian. I am not going to watch a naked teenage girl. I'm not going to do it. Got fired for it. Matt Staver, fortunately, is working on that case. But let me ask you this. Tell me, Christian teachers, are you allowed to teach creation? Are you allowed to tell your children in your classroom that Jesus is the Lord? You may be a Christian teacher, but if you are bound by your boss to teach critical race theory and Marxist philosophy, then you are not obeying the Lord either. You may be saved, but we're supposed to be training our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In fact, let me show you an example of Edmund. My wife showed me this just the other day. I'm not much of a social media person, and please forgive me, but I'm going to leave that up there. I thought about blotting that one side out. This is a local administrator in one of our schools. First of all, I'm a little bit sickened by the acknowledging the theft of the last election. By the way, have you noticed all these, these results are coming out of these states now uh, showing evidence of clear theft? By the way, instead of the American flag, we've got this mask flying. You know, if you want to feed that delusion, that's fine, but come on. Open transfer available. So for the kids, and that's what the local parents are saying, we want masks to be optional. We don't want our children to have to wear uh, and breathe CO2 eight hours a day. We want it to be optional. So you've got administrators, teachers standing here in the lobby of one of our public schools saying, hey, you don't like our rules? Move. Open transfer available. I thought they were supposed to work for the parents. And then over here, this was one of her. Notice you've got President Lincoln back behind who I believe, and I was not a Trump fan, but after four years of overwhelming majority, not all of his policies, but the overwhelming majority of his policies, to me, if you value my opinion, if you consider me a Christian and have any knowledge of our uh, constitutional republic, I think he's been the best president we've had. But is there any wonder, really, why our country is in the condition that it's in? Now, let me just say this. One generation could reverse course in and literally do a 180-degree turn within the next 10 years. I would encourage you, ladies and gentlemen, if you're still of age, our, we, we were able to send our kids to Christian Heritage Academy. And we had some sacrifices. We didn't make boatloads of money. I, I played NFL back before, you know, we got paid by the hour. I made about $5 an hour when I played. And, and I started a business, didn't make a lot of money the first few years when we were starting our business. My first three years of ministry, I didn't get paid a nickel. You guys saying, well, that was the only time you actually earned what you were paid. <laughs> Small church, 
Our interim pastor, who was an elder man in his 70s, when I was hired here, only one of us could get paid. Well, for, I had another business. I had another job. So I pastored for free for the first three years. So we, didn't, we had to watch our budget and make sacrifices, but we put our kids at Christian Heritage Academy. I'm thrilled with how, how, how that went. Absolutely thrilled. have no regrets. We spent a lot of money on their education. And we, and by the way, their consistency at home, they were taught the same thing at church, at school, and at home. They knew it was real. We, as a church here, we facilitate four different homeschools. You say, I don't know how to homeschool. That's okay. You can learn. There's a lot. And we have some 300 kids that are educated right now in our church with our homeschool networks and homeschool co-ops that we have here. And by the way, school's been shut down for the last year. Public school's been closed. They're trying to get you to do online school. Rather than use the garbage that's mandated by the federal government, why don't you teach them something that would be God-honoring? Boy, it's a perfect opportunity, perfect situation. And let me say this. I was having a good heart-to-heart talk with Joshua. We had the privilege of babysitting our son for the first time on Thursday evening. We had him for three hours. Boy, I'm glad God gives babies to young people. <laughs> After three hours, I was exhausted. But I asked Josh, I just asked Josh, because I want him to think, because we're mentoring him still, still his dad. I said, Josh, what do you remember about us? What do you remember about me growing up? You know what? He remembers all the stuff we did together. He remembers us. He remembers me spending time with him. Doesn't remember other stuff. He remembers, and it's amazing, he reeled off seven, eight, nine things just right off the top of his head. Things that we did together. Ladies and gentlemen, I can assure you, you will never regret spending time with your children. You will never be on your deathbed and say, oh, I wish I'd spent less, less time raising my family. No one will love your kids and pour into them the way you do. And let me tell you, if your kids know that mom loves dad and that dad loves mom and that mom and dad love the children, and home is not a war zone, home is not hell, home is a taste of heaven, and they are secure in their home, knowing that home is a safe place, your children will turn out wonderfully 100% of the time. But moms, I implore you, teach your children. Teach them to read, teach them to write, teach them to add, teach them to think critically. Teach them to play the piano. Teach them manners. Teach them how to drive a car when they reach that age. But most importantly, moms and dads, teach your children to love Jesus by letting them see you love Jesus. Now, we've talked about the important treasure that was entrusted to Mary. But as we close right now, let me say that there is another important treasure treasure. That's each and every one of us. God said, John three sixteen, for God so loved Paul Blair. For God so loved Steve Blair. For God so loved Terrell Holson. For God so loved Betty Holson. For God so loved Charlie Meadows. For God so loved Dan Fisher. And that one was a challenge. <laughs> that he gave his only begotten son. 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When Jesus stepped into his creation as a man, he willingly set aside his privilege as God, but he never set aside his position as God. Now, there were occasions Jesus would demonstrate the God card. And when you're in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Galilee and you get up and you tell the storm to go away and it does, that's called playing the God card. Cindy and I were out playing golf yesterday. It was an extremely windy day. <laughs> she looked at me and she said, peace, be still. Do you have any pull in heaven? <laughs> and I said, not that much, dear. I was a... But Jesus could say, peace, be still, and the storm goes away. The, the, the sea calms. That's playing the God card. When Jesus said, roll back the stone to Lazarus' tomb, Lazarus, come forth, and he obeys, that's playing the God card. But understand, there in Gethsemane, when Peter pulled out his sword to try to defend Jesus to escape, Jesus said, Peter, put your sword away. Now's not the time. Don't you know that I could call down 12 legions of angels right now? I could snap my fingers and have 84,000 of the host of the Lord right down here in my defense if I needed them. So you say, what, what point are you making, Pastor? And the point is this, the Romans didn't force Jesus on the cross. Those nails didn't hold Jesus to the cross. Jesus' love for you and me are what compelled Him to go to the cross. We talked about salvation a little bit earlier today at the very outset of this message. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Folks, just with, as with Adam, God does not force Himself on us. It's a choice. God has demonstrated His love for us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for your sins. But has there been a point in your life where you have willingly and intentionally invited Him into your life to be your Lord and to be your Savior? 